You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In Professing English, his history of English as an academic discipline and a university department, Gerald Graff claims that departmental boundaries are the fortifications of wars that the living have forgotten, along with the valiant dead who fought them. Thus, only those who know some history know why written and spoken rhetoric are matters for different departments, or why theory means a particular range of things in an English department that differ substantially from what they mean in a physics department. Christology is something like that. As a new Christian, I was taught to say that Jesus is fully human and fully God, and that Jesus died for our sins. But until I learned some history, I didn't know the questions to which those stood as answers. As each generation approaches theological work, the questions don't stand still, and Tripp Fuller's new book, Divine Investment, an open and relational constructive Christology, takes as its business posing questions for disciples of Jesus Christ in our moment. As always, Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have Tripp on the show to talk about this latest book. Welcome back, Tripp. Oh, always glad to get to talk to you and uh, hang out with all the Christian humanists. They're my favorite kind, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Tripp, your book opens presenting a reader with a double problematic for 21st century Christology, and I mean problematic in that rigorous uh, graduate seminar sense. (laughs) And these are the two problematics. Who is Christ? Who are we? How is your resulting double inquiry going to continue and to differ from a, a similar, frankly, double inquiry promised in the opening sentence of Augustine's Confessions. So, um, you know, people probably know this because y'all have such thoughtful, clear questions that uh, that y'all send them in advance. And this this question sent me off to one because I did not move with Augustine. Surprise, surprise! Uh, when I moved <laughs> to Scotland uh, to go get a copy of Confessions out, and then that's one of my favorite books to teach, uh, especially if you're doing undergrad, you know, religion or philosophy, because uh, he's a, you know, a captivating writer. He has an agenda, but he also uh, is perfectly good just to like in the middle of a story, just tell you what it was he was really getting at. And I was reading through and there are two questions, two lines that popped up uh, in it that I thought, Oh, there, the similarity between us really connects when he makes these two observations. Uh, one, he says, my desire wasn't to be more certain of you, but stable in you. And when I look at the relationship between who is Christ and who are we, uh, what Augustine's getting at and that rejection or dismissal of like, let's just be certain of these things, but to be stable in you. Uh, I think Christology is a place you're negotiating that. And Christology done well enables the person of faith to live and participate in the divine life, uh, in Christ, that kind of thing. Uh, And then later he says, uh, you never go away from us, yet we have difficulty in returning to you. And for him, you know, that's set in the context of his type of uh, uh, Platonism philosophically. It's set in the context of his own life journey and, and this type of thing. And, uh, and he's looking back at his life after he starts to face troubles as a bishop. Uh, and what is that story, uh, my story in relationship to God revealed in Christ, the intellectual quest, the personal quest, my relationship with my mother and all these type of things. Like, how is that going to inform me as a bishop? in the Donatist controversy, in this type of thing. Uh, and I think if you, you look at that quote, that the difficulty of returning to you is a different task today 
um, than it was for most of church history. Uh, today, the concept of God is contested. Um, today, religion isn't just um, a, you know, a type of dominant force. Um, it's a historical force. You can describe it with or without it referring to anything, having traction in any ultimate reality. And, and we're asking these questions again in a place where humans have been decentered. Uh, in our scientific cosmologies, all the way to thinking about the legacy of uh, kind of androcentrism in in the West, and so those questions, who is Christ and who are we, I think uh, you know resonate with that Augustinian task, but the place in which we ask it's different, and and uh, so yeah, I mean that was kind of what popped in my mind. I, it's real easy for me to lapse into a sermon. So you just have to cut me off, Nathan. <laughs> no need, no need. <laughs> now, one thing that I, that I like about your show and I like about the way that you do theology is that you have a talent for catchphrases uh, that point to concepts that are complex. Um, and yet, you know, they alliterate. And, you know, I teach Old English, so I'm big on alliteration. So this book's... Uh, catchphrase that, that really jumped out at me is, is quote, Christology is a disciple's discipline, end quote. <laughs> How does that framework distinguish your work from some of the alternatives out there in, well, I mean, in academic theology? Yeah, and so um, two things uh, that popped to mind. One is, uh, and you know this maybe more than some of the listeners, those that are more kind of uh, uh, invested in the philosophical conversations that are framed in continental context, continental philosophy, know that there's a whole move now to do theology without any reference to, um, you know, actual affirmation of ultimate reality, right? So theology has become a tool for the philosopher of religion to critique any type of uh, domination system or narrative or logic of supremacy and this type of thing. Um, And so I, I wanted to emphasize that, what we talk about when we do Christology necessitates the existential register. Um, and in the book, I talk about there being a metaphysical register for the, uh, theology, a, a historical one, right? The person of Jesus and an existential one. But you don't call Jesus the Christ um, unless you're calling him the Christ, right? Like it, the Christ isn't his last name. It is a title that comes with an allegiance, And so that existential register that I give myself to life in this way, following this person in this community, uh, I think is essential. And so Christology is not a particular kind of discipline you do as spectator, uh, as uh, critic, uh, that type of thing. And the other side of that um, is that it contrasts with theology from above and theology from below. and if you're doing Christology from above, then you start with the conclusions of the ecumenical councils and the early church, that the authority of the church, and when it got together, is like, these are conclusions, uh, fully God, fully human, right? These type of, uh, and, and there it comes, the starting point is a place of ecclesiastical authority. And uh, in, in some do Christology, and they start from below, the historical Jesus, and they build up, right? And by inference you can get to a demand to make a conclusion, be it uh, someone like Wolfhart Pannenberg, Jesus, God, and man, he gives a historical argument from below for a robust affirmation of Christ that connects to the, uh, from above. 
And both of those I, I want to resist because they in either by authority or by rational, factual inference, make a demand that this is the right conclusion. And I think if you look at the Gospels, and I think if you think about what it's like to be a Christian, that we're both believers and skeptics at the same time, and Christology is something you discover its content precisely by being faithful. And it's not something you settle either through some external authority or from external rational assessment of facts in history. Uh, Christology is a discipline that comes from a community shaped by the practice and way of Jesus. And, and so that's what I'm trying to get at from it being a disciple's discipline and it happening from within. I want to follow uh, up on as that. As opposed to above and below. Yeah, I want to follow up on that a little bit because uh, at least one notion of discipleship is precisely to enter into a historical tradition that does involve some kind of mentor relationship with the generations who came before. So, mm -hmm. you know, what you narrate as uh, external authority uh, is not external at all for someone, for instance, who is a catechumen in an Orthodox church or someone who is undergoing confirmation in the Catholic church. So what, 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 talk a little bit about that distinction for us. Okay. Well, uh, first I just say I'm Baptist, right? So uh, we joke and say no creed, but Christ. And as long as you read the Bible and pray every day, you get all sorts of different expressions of it. Um, I remember in undergrad when I heard that there were Christians that had creeds and I felt dirty. So, you know, if you were doing just a, a, a inspecting trips, uh, uh, <laughs> the work of false consciousness, <laughs> my relationship to uh, creedal demands is very uh, small. And I never, I didn't have my Hauerwasian face, you know, <laughs> uh, I didn't come up with a Baptist way of being Catholic, but you know, on the other side of it, I would just say, um, my, um, my philosophy of religion or postmodernishness is one that I see the tradition precisely as questions and not statements. Uh, and so the question is, who is Jesus and what did God do in Christ? These type of things. Um, and to be faithful to a tradition isn't repetition of the conclusions, but about a, a re-embracing uh, of the questions. And, it, you know, it's, it's similar to when I've, I've heard you discuss on the podcast, the type of, you know, uh, a, a Jewish relationship with uh, scripture and tradition. I, I think we have something to gain uh, by doing that. Um, and, and so I don't want to silence uh, creedal traditions and all that kind of thing, but in a, in a sense, um, the creedal tradition silenced the actual evangelist that wrote the four gospels. Uh, no one is no, like I, well, okay, I know it's a few, but the most like new Testament scholars don't think Matthew, Mark, and Luke or John are running around spitting Cappadocian, uh, Trinitarian beliefs. Like those emerge out of this tradition. And so a lot of times people, uh, the authority is what part of the tradition is privileged enough to impose itself on others. And uh, what I want to do in, in, in how I frame the tradition is to simultaneously include as much as possible. Uh, but that means, uh, you know, not, not privileging a particular moment, a particular expression. And as you can imagine for me, the philosophical background for the ecclesiastical uh, uh, conclusions are problematic for a whole host of reasons. Um, I, uh, and, and since moving to the UK, I've discovered there are quite a few people here that uh, invest their whole careers on recapitulating um, 
uh, versions of Platonism and Aristotelian thought. All right. but, Say hello to John uh, Milbank for me, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, Milbank. <laughs> you have to admit, you have to admit, uh, if there wasn't a president on Twitter, we would think, do you really need to say everything that's on your mind? But Milbank, he just he just lets it ride, you know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Milbank is one of several people in the world I think really shouldn't shouldn't ever have been given a Twitter account. But that's it. Or if he just posted his pictures, <laughs> he has really nice pictures of like nature when he goes on walks. Yeah, yeah, his his photographs of the countryside really are spectacular. Uh, now that said, I'm I'm working from memory because I, I deleted my Twitter several months ago, but. Um, I was just trying to lure you back. I, I you know, know, I know. And, and right now, for the sake of my soul, I need to stay away from Twitter. But I want to get back to the book because in your chapter on the historical Jesus, you make passing reference to science, modern style history, and religious pluralism as the new solas of the modern liberal theologian. And I got a sense that there is something of a critique and something of a commendation there. So talk a little bit about how they differ in content and in worth from the old guard, Solus Christus and Sola Fide and Sola Gratia. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've been thinking about this and the, my answer I'm about to give you isn't in the book. Uh, this is me answering this question to you that made well, me. Well, this uh, is and, good. <laughs> uh, what I'm working on right now, and this is the image I've been thinking about using, um, that, uh, and this is really connected to the way that existential register but the person who experiences faith within an embodied, situated experience within a tradition and a community, and then their own practice within it, uh, also today has the opportunity of thinking and reflecting with or as someone outside of that context, right? And you learn this in the academy. It's not a, uh, a negative thing that you simultaneously can learn to think about a tradition without being within it and on the outside. And it, it doesn't just include religious traditions. You can do so about uh, all, all sorts of different um, language games and sets of symbols and relations. But if you think of the religious tradition for most of Western history, um, there there wasn't the type of pluralism, the historical scientific criticisms that were there. And so the there wasn't the anxiety um, that you have uh, in seeing the socio-cultural constructions um, behind the language myths, symbols, and rituals that you relate to. It's as if you, when you're in Christendom, for example, you're in a church and they're all of these stained glass windows and they tell the story of Israel and Jesus and the church. And when you're born, you're born into a world where all reality comes through these, these windows and these narratives that give life and meaning and excitement and joy and all this type of thing. Frames your death, your goings and your comings, right? Um, but Today, we're, we as people of faith have that experience in that sanctuary, but we also walk out of it. And when you're outside a church, stained glass windows look like someone gave their kid a Crayola pack and then were worried and made them throw up, right? It's just a collection of colors. You can't see what the story is. It's just smudges. And I think liberal, the liberal tradition uh, wanted to say, like, we have to address these things. You can't come up with a way that the content of the Christian tradition is protected with your 
theory of infallibility or your theory of self-revelation or whatever, that um, you can't come a harbor away from this, these critical insights and awareness and framings. And you can't go back inside the church as if uh, there aren't what other religious traditions have their own narratives that give, uh, you know, meaning, purpose, value. Um, and so I, I would want to say like the old solas uh, don't have to be diminished. They just have to be properly situated. And until you're in a historical context uh, where uh, that we are, there was nothing wrong in early modernity for the Reformation to do that. The problem is when people today act as if um, the, the human subject in most of the West yeah. can exist there. Uh, that insistence to lock yourself in your religious tradition and, uh, and demand that all voices experience cohere with right. it is problematic. And so, like, I'd want to, one, at that existential register, say, yes, this is the type of relationship you're supposed to have with your religious tradition. And as a Protestant, it does mean things like sola fide, sola gratia, right? But um, that, the, that can't be uh, an answer or a response to, well, what do you do about the historical Jesus? Or how does this relate to, you know, that type of thing. And, I, and that image of the stained glass window I found really helpful in, in wrestling with it. Because a stained glass window is simultaneously the privileged elements of a historically contingent narrative that are, that are chosen and turned into art for the community to frame their own self-narration. And uh, anyway, like, it, you know, it's, it, I actually think it's a good way of tackling kind of like how Paul Ricoeur looks at the relationship of narrative and self and uh, what's getting itself done in religious uh, epistemologies. Right. And I think that, you know, the, the difference in the way that I approach those questions, uh, and I, I actually didn't anticipate this when I brought up Milbank earlier, is the question of, of which narrative situates which other narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, in a certain meta narrative that I'll, that I'll call progressive, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, the newer narratives uh, always situate the older ones. In other words, they encompass them, they are uh, broader and therefore they can account for the existence and the particulars of the newer narrative. Whereas something that, you know, I would call conservative uh, would, would make the claim that it is situating the newer narratives as, uh, you know, as innovations to be sure, but ultimately as less adequate innovations. Uh, in other words, you know, innovations that emerge from a lack of experience, a lack of um, uh, a lack of respect, if you will, mm -hmm. for, you know, the generations that have gone before. So I, I think it's interesting because, I mean, this book, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a brief book, first of all. Uh, so it, it, it isn't claiming to be systematic in the way that it would need to be to tackle that gigantic inquiry. But uh, I, I think that, you know, it, it does at the very least serve as an exhibit for different ways to frame those meta-narrative frameworks. Mm -hmm. in, in, uh, and I'm interested in what you think about this. Uh, the, it, that one of the challenges I, in our current context is, uh, or, or which challenge you pick to focus on depends on you know, how you would render the Christological question. And you know, this whole book is structured where an open and relational theology gives back to the liberal tradition uh, deep metaphysical affirmations, despite the way they imagine the historical register 
necessitating a reduction of Christology to the existential one, right? So the project of the book is to say that the specificity of a particular confession as a Christian, Jesus is the Christ, image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, that kind of stuff, is a place in which a Christian, aware of this tension that liberal theology has to do with its confessional tradition, can actually end up talking at a metaphysical, historical, and existential register. Um, and so, you know, part of that stuff at the beginning is setting up for the constructive work of reinflating liberals' Christologies. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think the constructive part, and this is actually going to be in the next book, uh, because uh, you, you're right, like, I cut two chapters out and intentionally wrote a book I hoped most people would finish. <laughs> That's uh, nice. Some theologians, it, I, I like the last two chapters. I wanted you to read them. So if I put two more chapters in the middle, there would be a lot of people that quit. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> but I understand I that. I think the answer... I think the answer to do justice to both, or at least what I'm currently working on, is a type of, uh, we need a deep enough affirmation of the incarnation that its situatedness within covenant in this book connects to uh, a, a cosmology or creation in the next one. And from that point, you can have a particular situated affirmation with a universal horizon, right? The covenantal context, scandal, particularity. But it also has to resonate in the open relational framework with the whole story of emergence for life that has the possibility of responding uh, through, you know, uh, linguistic ritual, symbolic actions with the ultimate. Uh, and, and so by having a deeper account of the incarnation and God's solidarity with existence and flesh, as opposed to just, you know, Soma, um, I think gets to, it is one way of doing it, right? So you're preserving a tradition, you're recognizing those criticisms, but not, um, you know, not uh, insisting that all new questions that come up have to fit within the sanctuary. Oh, metaphor. certainly, certainly. That's, you know, yeah. um, you know, it, it wouldn't be a Christian humanist podcast if McIntyre didn't come up. I mean, that is McIntyre's notion of tradition, right? It's an ongoing dispute about the good central to the tradition itself. So. Uh, mm -hmm. If we if we ever stop asking those questions, then we are, then we have on our hands a dead tradition. But I want to get to some more of your book. I want to get to some more of your book. After your historical Jesus exploration, you turn to spirit Christology, a term that our listeners might not know as a distinctive category. So, what makes spirit Christology distinct from logos Christology, and how often do those two overlap? Yeah. So, um, you know the. The three middle chapters were written um, looking at different starting points. So one of the big debates in Christology is do you start with the person, how you understand the humanity and divinity of Jesus, or do you start with the work, what God has done in Christ, um, their notion of salvation, and then work backwards to the person? Uh, and, you know, Protestants tend to start with the person, I mean, the work, and um, prior to that, you get emphasis on the person. Uh, and, and, and part of that, I, the problem around the questions of the person is that for so long, a particular motif in scripture became the dominant reigning one and then imposed its kind of poetic resonance within the rest of them. And that's the logos. And you get why, because of the type of questions that were coming up in the councils and such, but logos Christology, which primarily comes from John and then is interpreted in a 
you know, a, a very Hellenistic context. You get the Stoic resonance. You get the kind of Neoplatonist relationship to a Judaism coming up. And there's lots of different ways of getting at it. But uh, the uh, spirit Christology is a much more uh, popular in the New Testament image for how you understand uh, the presence of God in relationship to the person of Jesus. And, in, and so what I was hoping to do in, in highlighting them is to ask the questions again that the church has asked about the person of Jesus uh, with uh, different starting points. So the, the chapter on spirit Christology is primarily looking at um, the way the spirit of God, which is present in the world and working at all times, uh, becomes the, the centering place for thinking about the way the historical person of Jesus responds to that spirit, is infused with that spirit, embodies that spirit, participates with that spirit, gives flesh to that spirit, uh, such that you would say uh, this uh, person is uh, you know, the, the divine and human right? Um, Logos Christology um, doesn't have that type of imminent creative generative principle you see in the spirit that runs through the Hebrew scriptures. It's about God's uh, prior to creation, uh, God's design, intention, reason, and will for the world. And this universal Logos, um, uh, you know, it's with God and all that kind of stuff in the Logos, is embodied in the person of Jesus. And and that, that, you know, one kind of assumes this dynamic, imminent reality of the spirit in the world. And then how, in what way is the Jesus particular human expression cohere deeply with the divine life? And the other presumes uh, a kind of eternal context. And, and uh, if you don't silence the language of the spirit, then the goal of the book is like to see how they read with each other uh, constructively uh, today. Um, right. And one of the moves, Oh, go it, ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. I, I don't want to keep talking. Well, one of the moves that you make <laughs> when you talk about uh, spirit Christology is you put it in relationship with religious pluralism. And that leads me to my next question. I mean, if we, bring spirit Christology into conversation with that historical Jesus conversation. Um, spirit Christology, as you narrate it here, seems to locate, locate the movement of God in a broad range of traditions that history calls religions or wisdom communities or spiritual communities. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, a, one of the, one of the uh, claims that you insist on, and I think rightly uh, is that any Christology has to be a, has to involve a Jewish Jesus, right? So, you know, what I'm interested in is, I mean, how do those fit together? Because it seems like a, a world spirit, you know, almost, you know, entering into a Hegelian, you know, Geist kind of register uh, is the opposite, if you will, of a particularly Jewish Jesus, as opposed to a Buddhist Jesus or a Yoruba Jesus or a, you know, uh, Platonist Jesus, right? So uh, how, how do those pieces fit together? Because honestly, I, I saw the pieces over here and I saw the pieces over there and I couldn't figure out how they fit. Well, I guess one part would be, um, you know, the spirit used to interpret Jesus's personhood um, existed in the New Testament before Hegel did, right? Like, so in some sense, like it is a motif there. Um, the, the notion of the spirit also was alive in the Hebrew scriptures 
uh, a way of understanding the presence and nature of God um, in a longer version uh, where before the Logos and Spirit sections, there's 15 pages of those images throughout scripture. Yeah, I point out how the, the notion of divine eminence and spirit is used to describe God's relationship with other nations outside of Israel. Um, just like Jesus, you could see how the Logos functioned in the early church to do similar things, or the concept of Sophia in wisdom literature to do certain things. Um, so the, one, I just want to say, the part of that problem, I think, in Christology uh, about uh, is twofold. One, you have the scandal of particularity, that uh, you are talking about something universal and within a particular tradition, the, the idea is that God, after Babel, if you're thinking biblical narrative, doesn't go try to talk to everybody again. Right, right. God's like, look, y'all are all cooperating, and what did you do? You tried to take my ass out, right? Like they're building up the tower and stuff, so it's like, boom, lots of language. So like after that, you see the very nature of divine self-investment is God pours God's self into a particular people because God desires for the ones God blesses to receive that blessing and affirmation and embody it in the world. And so that covenantal context is the relational dynamic of that particularity. And so, you know, for me, when I think of our contemporary context, especially around um, our, uh, like my own experience as a Christian, is it, I always speak from the place I'm in and you speak towards your neighbor. And I don't think the, and I try not to, at least in the book, like I, I don't want to speak about things I don't have a whole lot of experience for. And if I want to affirm the embedded embodied nature of the Christian confession, then I don't know how to talk and speak on behalf of other people and other traditions right? So part of honoring your neighbor and not bearing false witness, I think, is to have a type of generosity uh, towards it. But I don't think that necessitates uh, one particular religious expression having to ultimately dominate the others. Um, and, and you asked a question similar to this later, which you I mean the other half of my answer is in, uh, but the, you know, the other side of um, Hegel that I was more concerned about than the, the meta-narrative part is his relativizing of religion as picture thinking. Um, so you know, Hegel has this idea that in his story of absolute spirit that it's precisely like religion sets up ultimately becoming a good philosopher, right? And so his, uh, what was, there's a, a whole host of different religions, then there's the best one. <laughs> Christianity, and that's the one where the absolute takes flesh and these type of things. Uh, and then it sets up for being able to do philosophy, where it, it, you, this picture thinking you have in religion is purified to straightforward conceptual uh, vision of the dialectic. Uh, this book is a, is a critique of uh, liberal Christians who do something similar, where their philosophical vision is not shaped and impacted by their Christological confession, right? So the philosophical vision of a lot of theologians is one where you come up with your philosophical vision and then you use it to read Christology or a doctrine or whatever. 
And what I'm working on in the book is saying we as open relational thinkers use it to help us understand, right? The person and work of Jesus, but also what we come to understand should then influence or thematize how we think metaphysically. And so when I'm trying to resist that the absolutism of Hegel is I don't want to ultimately uh, allow the Christological explanation to function as just that, a philosophical account of what was already true philosophically. Uh, and so they have to kind of thematize each other. Right. And I certainly don't want to imply that this book is simply Hegelianism without remainder. Uh, like I said, it was that tension between the mm -hmm. universal and particular to which we're going to return, as you said, that, uh, that really kind of uh, kept my attention throughout this book. But I want to turn to your, to your ex extended conversation about uh, Logos Christology and specifically uh, the work of Catherine Tanner. I'll, I'll confess that very little of what you relate there struck me as revolutionary. I wasn't really familiar with Tanner. Uh, but I learned 20 years ago in seminary to think of creation as the site of divine grace. And my professors who love the Cappadocians always insisted that salvation begins with incarnation and certainly takes particular form on Good Friday and Easter, but that all of the above are part of an interrelated cosmic narrative, not atomized snapshots. So, I mean, was my seminary education just idiosyncratic there with its focus on incarnation or what tendencies in theology is Tanner responding to that perhaps isn't part of my particular background? Well, uh, I mean, I think there's two sides of it. One, um, the, there is a debate in church history as to like, it, it, or you, one way of putting it as simple is like most Christologies emphasize either the incarnation, the death or the resurrection. And then the meaning for the other two function that way. A lot of Christians, especially in America, um, are in, especially those in evangelical context, are going to emphasize the uh, cross. And, um, and connected to it is a reformed uh, anthropology, one that would not make the types of affirmations that Catherine Tanner makes about the human, that all creation and specifically humans in a unique way have this type of weak participation, which is the inherent dignity of being a creature of God. This inherent dignity cannot be removed because of sin. Sin may distort it. It may, you know, dirty it, but, it, but that gift of weak participation, it is above finite beings pay grade to get rid of it. Right. So there's this, it, the incarnation is connected to uh, the doctrine of creation as weak participation in creation is a preparatory and anticipatory reality. that sets up the strong participation that comes through the incarnation. Now, the unique thing I think about, uh, or one of the unique things then, is that the incarnation is the gift of the infinite to the finite. That ontological distinction in her thought means that God has refused to be God without us. God gives God's self to the world. And so the incarnation establishes our, the eschatological horizon because at an ontological level, the finite has now been embraced by the infinite. And so the story of, say, sanctification or the, and such is the place in which the images of cross and resurrection function. The cross reveals to us our brokenness and all this type of stuff, right? The resurrection insists upon God's gift of creation and God's gift of justification being our truest identity. Uh, and, and you could see how that resists a lot of the 
reform narratives and such that run in American evangelicalism. Um, but the way she does incarnation is also a pushback to a lot of liberal Christians who want to replace incarnation with a type of Jesus as like the individual who shows us morality or something like that. Right, it, right. It's a relativizing the, the picture Ralph of Waldo his person. Jesus. Yeah. And, and she's going, uh, no, right. It's precise. It, it is this big giving self-giving of God uh, that is ultimately redemptive. It is not the uh, coming to see what a true human can really be. For, for Catherine Tanner, she's insisting that the incarnation changes the, uh, the, the ontological framework for understanding personhood. Um, and, and I think that that mutual pushback to both it comes from a real creative connection of Luther, her interpretation of Luther with uh, the Cappadocians uh, together. Um, and if I, you know, if I was wanting, I think it's one of the most brilliant new Christologies in recent years uh, because it connects these dots from multiple traditions with the questions of our, um, you know, our contemporary context. Uh, certainly, certainly. And like I said, I mean, I, my suspicion is that my own education was just idiosyncratic because again, a lot of these points, you know, I certainly grant that that Tanner is reframing them in a very interesting and a very intelligent way, but the raw materials, if you will, the ingredients for brewing that particular kind of faith, mm -hmm. if you will, I just made that up. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I feel like I picked them up from Boethius and Erasmus and Thomas Aquinas in my undergrad reading, um, you know, so that Again, you know, when I read that, uh, I see that as one stream of Christianity, to be sure, uh, and I recognize that the other one exists, but it, it didn't strike me as revolutionary. So I, I guess this is my uh, my little commercial for Milligan College, where uh, you actually uh, read some old books so that you don't think that, uh, you know, uh, Billy Graham is the beginning and the end of Christian theology. Um, I want to fully endorse that Billy Graham is not the beginning nor the end of Christian theology. Um, well, but his son might be the end of it. Oh, he's certainly trying, isn't he? Yeah. Well, anyway, Trip. anyone who has listened to <laughs> homebrewed Christianity for any time, as I have, has heard you talk about Alfred North Whitehead's philosophy and John Cobb's Whitehead-rooted theology, but not everyone here has spent those hours with your shows. So let's be strategic with our overview here. Christian Humanist Profiles listeners have heard me discuss with Tom Ord a particular question about God's moral standing, namely how to formulate a theology in which God does not stand culpable for the evil in the world. Whitehead and Cobb and the process tradition more broadly are open and relational. That's, I guess that's the larger category. They have a particular way of answering that question. So sketch this tradition of answers and how it relates to your Christological project. Yes, yeah, so... Um... I guess there are three things I would emphasize. One is that open relational theology broadly um, and process more specifically uh, recognize that each moment of becoming their three powers operative in a moment. And one is the past. Uh, the past is settled and inherited. It shapes what's possible in the next moment, but it doesn't determine it. Um, but the past itself is not... Uh, you know, without God, it's precisely the fruit of God's ongoing relationship with a uh, real world. 
Um, the second power is uh, possibilities available to the moment and God's divine valuation of those possibilities. You can see the call of God or the lure of God or desire of God in any moment. And, um, and God in a moment is, is desiring the most beautiful, true, and good thing uh, that's really possible. And then the third power is the particular creature. And creaturely power varies based on its its moment, its situation, its complexity. You know, it varies in all sorts of ways, right? But there, in an open and relational context, it, the affirmation is that the at the level of the experiencing entity, there's some measure of responsiveness, and that is the responsibility of that creature. And the so when you're thinking of uh, a question about that involves power then you have to say like what part of any evil act is god part of or what part are creatures part of right and um i think that means that the possibility of evil in any moment is that god is a part of it in the sense that god has invested god's self moment to moment throughout 13.8 billion years in our particular space time where uh what is happening in a moment is one possibility that's there, right? And so you, when, you, when you think about that, um, you have to go, as an open relational person, I think you go, then what is God's desire? Um, when you look at the big story of cosmic history, God desires greater complexity, relationality, the growth of value, these type of things. Um, and, and so the, the question around the problem of evil and suffering and God's culpability in it uh, it is really related to whether or not God should have invested God's self in the world moment to moment and generated the type of deeper subjectivity and complexity of response that we see in human agents. Um, and, right. you know, and, and just to like hint towards the end, I think that that means that a, an open relational thinker who is internally consistent would have to mean uh, that that God is not just uh, giving possibilities, but giving God's self. Right, right. Um, and it's interesting because this, so. this book goes in a direction that I don't remember hearing on homebrew Christianity, but I'll admit I have not listened to all 1,200 hours well, of I it. intentionally left a number of ideas in the book. I just avoided saying them just so people that read it would hear something other than the greatest hits of listening to Trip for hours upon hours. <laughs> But this is a direction that I, I really want to to pursue for a moment here because uh, one of the frequent critiques that you make of classical theism uh, is the negligent parent uh, critique, right? Which is that you know if a being is capable of uh, rescuing any intelligent being from any kind of evil, then that intelligent being is culpable for it. Uh, but it seems that you know this this avenue of inquiry that that you're drawing on from Cobb. Uh, if I can coin a phrase, it, it leads into the sorcerer's apprentice problem where God mm -hmm. creates things that spin out of control and create evil that God is incapable of stopping. Uh, and I'll confess right now, I've got the, uh, the Mickey Mouse sorcerer's apprentice in mind. I don't know if there's a, a source text for that one. That'll be a Michael Farmer question later. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, in what way is the sorcerer's apprentice problem a better problem to have than the negligent parent problem or am i am i framing the problem wrong in the first place well you know nathan i want you to know that 
I used to think, how is this unclear? And then I've hung out with analytic theologians recently. <laughs> and I get asked this question all the time. And, you know, and I, it, I, it's a, here's my new answer. And you can tell me if this helps any, uh, at this point, I feel like, um, my friends here like to just give me a hard time and set me off again. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, like I mentioned about what do we take to see God's desire? So if the whole cosmic story involves the emergence of entities who have the type of subjectivity and responsiveness that we have, right? And, and e, e, then you have to say something like, God, uh, uh, this would be like three layers of divine self-investment in the big cosmic story. One is God's cosmic self-investment, right? So that there is a greater depth of responsiveness in creation, to God's uh, re- desire for relationship moment to moment. Um, you, you had to have two dead stars to get a periodic table where biological life could ever emerge in the right conditions. And you know, there's this huge investment moment to moment and little bitty smudges of possibility to get to the emergence of life uh, in us. And then think about God, like the, think of an incarnation in this context. This is one of the reasons I em- emphasize the covenantal part in the book. Um, God invests in a particular people, right? And it's precisely God's investment in this covenant, which creates a whole new context where you get the gift of Torah. You get the gift of prophets and this type of thing. Without the covenantal context, you don't get this new level of intimacy in things. But what do we see running through the covenant? Risk. What do we see running through the story of evolution? Risk. There is, the greater investment leads to greater possibility of resistance, violence, and risk. Then you get to this other deeper investment, the kenosis, right? With the covenant creates a concept for kenosis. Jesus's full faithfulness to God such that he is the image of the invisible God, the fruit of the vine of David, this type of thing. And, and so if you're looking in that line, then I ask this, I, I, I'll put it this way, right? Um, when you're sitting there in marriage counseling as a minister, it's, they're smitten, young love, planning marriages. The second time you sit in the room with the same person on their second marriage, they understand that they're choosing to do the risk again. And they have had to wrestle with that question. Was it worth it? Right? Like they had given themselves to a relationship and who knows what happened, but they're there again, ready to make this risk. The risk to invest on behalf of the possibility of your deepest desire, someone to know you and love you for better or worse till death do you part, is worth it again. Um, that, I think, oh, is sure, a good sure. example um, of, of, of an open and relational response to the problem of evil. It's not that God isn't somehow a part of this story and, and yes, it could have been otherwise, but it could have been otherwise would have been saying, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want the deep affirmation that comes in being uh, loved and known in a reciprocal place. And so like, if God is indeed love, then I think that comes with risk. But the risk is precisely on behalf of uh, that possibility. And, and, and I would say that the end of the book, uh, I think that does mean 
that an open relational theology has to, that, that Han or God's participation in the pain and suffering of existence is not just something God resists moment to moment, but that God internalizes and shares such that the salvation we desire is not just one-sided. Yes, it's asymmetrical in the sense that more has to be uh, dealt with for the humans, but God desires something that God opened God's self up for. And so uh, salvation uh, puts a demand on each side, right? Um, and and, and I, it, I, I thought that part shows what is required of these kind of open relational commitments. And uh, it, it's, it's kind of an offensive theological statement, right? Like God's in need of salvation. Um, yeah, so, so I, like, I think your question's so important. I wanted to not dodge it by saying, here's how, how, how necessary, uh, or this is, this is what it would demand of God, right? To, is that God would be in need of uh, salvation if this was. Well, honestly, that was one of my concerns is that I was, I was too readily and too fully conflating your project with Tom Ward's because there's a lot of overlap there, but they're not identical by any means. But I mean, his project in the three books of his that I've read, the, uh, the nature of love, the uncontrolling love of God and God can't, I mean, it is a, an insistent and an unrelenting project of exculpating God, right? Removing moral culpability from God. Right. And what I found interesting about this is that in your theology of risk here, uh, there seems to be a reintroduction of a divine culpability. But like I said, I mean, it, it's in a, uh, you know, what you call a marriage counseling model. I call it a, a sorcerer's apprentice model. Uh, but in both cases, I mean, I, I respect that, you know, because, you know, as you know, I mean, I am a, a deconstructionist when it comes to theology. I, I don't think that there are theologies without contradiction. So, I mean, I, 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 uh, you know, this, this is why I tend to infuriate both open relational people and Calvinists because what, you know, for all of their dis disagreements, they both seem to want theology without contradiction. And I don't think that's possible if you actually, if, uh, let me back that up. If you take the text of the Old and New Testament as revelation in the way that I do. Now, what I would contend is that both open relational traditions and Calvinism, um, relativize certain passages. I think open relational folks are a little bit more open about that. I didn't mean that pun, but I, I'll still own it. Uh, but uh, I think that, you know, because my own, you know, Stone Campbell Disciples of Christ tradition is so biblicist, uh, I think that that's, that's where my theology is going to differ from either of those camps, because I want to keep all of the Bible and all of its contradictions. And if that means that I am, you know, uh, some days, railing against the God of Job and some days uh, singing praises of the God who empties Christ of the divine nature so that he can take on the form of a servant and die on the cross. I will do both of those because both of those are part of the gift that God gives. That's called the Holy scripture. Does that distinction make sense? Oh yeah. I, so, you know, my way of dealing with that was like when I was a minister, I, uh, you know, I didn't, I don't know if you would immediately know my deepest systematic theologies. I think there's a reason to deal with the texts that are there. And I don't know if we know 
Uh, or put it this way, every theologian dies. Very few of them ever get remembered. And if they do get read, they don't, don't get read that long. And then if they get continue to get read, they get read by other people who then tell others what they really meant. Right? They, how many per- people have a deep relationship with many theologians? Like I do it professionally, and I have like five. Yeah, that's about friends, what I've got you know? as well. Um, it, yeah. So, so I, I, I think there is a a good point especially for those of us with uh, uh, who've drank enough from postmodern uh, Kool-Aid jars to, to say like, look, th- these texts are going to outlast all of us. Why, why try to systematize a tradition that's multiplicity and divergent uh, testimonies are its biggest gift? Because uh, you never know what when this text time shows up again right like and and so i think that there's a a, a goodness to that i also think that the uh, i a friend of mine is working on a proposal to do a three-year project um psychological evaluation of systematic theologians and see like if you do major is that dan coke by, no. by chance <laughs> but because <laughs> that, that yes. sounds like something Dan the, Cook would the, do. It, looking at the way, uh, you know, most of the battery of personality tests and things and doing like deep questioning around their biographies. Um, and then uh, like how conscious are they about their decisions to choose a place and all this type of stuff. Uh, because you're right, like um, systematic theologians and constructive theologians, like once you start to be more specific, then you are privileging and not privileging certain things. Um, I would just say like, I mean, I think I'm pretty clear about mine. Like I tell people all the time, like if God's not as nice as Jesus, I'm just going to reread it. Like that's, that's obviously not the most popular answer in church history. Um, and in fact, most of the church has been trying to figure out how Jesus could be more like Caesar and cooperate with, uh, Roman imperialism. Um, and, uh, and, and now white evangelicalism is figuring out how to use those tricks with Trump. So it's like, it, like, so, like sometimes it's a straight up value commitment. It's just, um, I, it, yeah, there's, there are blindnesses on each one. And I think if you know, uh, if, if how you begin is a conscious decision, yeah, that's, that's better enough. That's than fair not. enough. I, I do um, want to spend a little bit. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. I, I've had a, I was just going to give an example. Like, you know, Oliver Crisp is a reformed analytic theologian. Right. He's been he on came on this show a, a little while ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and we have had a, multiple long conversations. And at one point got to a place where it's just like, yeah, in some sense, every system or conversation or theological tradition has its like embarrassing weak points. So choose the one you can deal with the best. And, uh, and obviously ours are very different. And, uh, but I do think that you can get to that place with lots of conversations in the same way someone, uh, moves as a Christian to a liturgical context from a charismatic one or vice versa. There's certain gifts and particular tonalities of a tradition. Um, and you can enjoy those argue for them and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, without, I think, you know, uh, acting as if the spirit of God isn't in the other parts of Christ's body. Oh, to be sure, to be sure. I do want to spend a little bit but of time. It is questionable you, you mentioned the, you, do, <laughs> you spend a bit of time talking about, actually a fair bit of time, talking about uh, Han theology of, of Andrew Sung mm-hmm. Park. Uh, and it's interesting because when I think of Korean Christianity, I think of Presbyterians. 
Uh, but I mean, instead of the traditional Presbyterian emphasis on sin as a rebellion against God, um, Park's theology moves towards a, a concern with those who fall victim to the overwhelming violence of the world, those who suffer Han. So to what extent is Park's move here a thread of 20th century liberation theology? Because I definitely hear echoes of Gutierrez, echoes of James Cone. And to what extent is this a new and distinctive focus? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Andrew Sung Park's uh, a Methodist theologian and not a Presbyterian one. And so, well, there's the it, first difference. Is, okay, go right, ahead. Right. <laughs> but um, someone like Grace G. Sun Kim, who has been on the podcast and has written uh, powerfully around the concept of Han and stuff, is a Presbyterian. Uh, theologian, and so so the the concept on which comes out of the Korean context is a description. I, I learned it from the West Wing. Yeah, <laughs> Every, there are lots of things we learned from the West Wing. Um, not enough of it stuck when it goes how a democracy functions, but that's beside the point. Uh, the the, uh, the the concept of Han is trying to get at the way wounds and pain gets internalized and becomes this uh, festering power in people and in collectives. Uh, and, and, and a lot of times, the, the, the primary way one's self, the selfhood, or, or, or the way they, the affirmation God gives you as an image bearer is limited, harmed, wounded, is Han, right? The way, not just you've been sinned against, but the inheritance of this, um, uh, and and you know when you mentioned Gutierrez and Cohn, both of them in their own work, when they heard the concept in Korean thought, resonated with it. But I do think it gets at and said like you know uh, Cohn talked about like what's getting itself done in the blues and in jazz is the, this type of space. So uh, and it, but I do think it it says something more than those, or, or at least gets at it different. Uh, two points. One, uh, it's, it's more participatory. There's a more participatory concept of God in Korean theologians wrestling with Han, right? So there's one element that's shared with the liberation theologians recognizing this situated contextual intergenerational affective nature of violence and pain and suffering. And, but the Han notion is not for Andrew Sung Park, people, uh, Grace G. Sung Kim and stuff, uh, is, is something God knows internally, right? It's not just God hears the cry, let my people go, and, and this type of thing. Um, the concept of Han, and in, 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 I think this is true in uh, Japanese theologians of pain um, and, and others, but where God's participation in uh, the world means Han is something that takes place within the life of God. And for Gutierrez and his Catholic background, Cone and his Bardian uh, background and the, the questions around divine power and stuff in the black church that and, and divine impassibility. Yeah. The, those type of things are, you know, overturned in a sense with Han. The other side of it um, that I, I also think is important in, and I don't remember if I, left this in or not, but interesting part tells the story of a family member, you know, having this conversion experience uh, at a Billy Graham rally. Right. And, uh, and, and then visiting him. And every time he would go to this family with this family member to church, every sermon ended in the same way, right? Like you're a sinner, you got to pray the prayer of forgiveness and God, you turn this type of 
uh, thing. And um, the question is, is that good news if your problem is Han? That is, I, I, I think, just really important. It, do you tell the same narrative of salvation for the sinner, right, repent, or, and the sin against the victim, those with Han? Um, do, is, is guilt handled in the same salvation story as shame? Is the one, is the abuser reconciling with God the same way the abuse? And uh, right. what Anderson and, 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 I'll, and I'll pause for just at. a moment here. And I mean, this definitely affects the way that you read New Testament texts like mm -hmm. Revelation. If you try to make Revelation about individual guilt, it is unintelligible. If you make it about oppression, then it is a word of hope and it's a word of mm -hmm. no i i think that's i think that's really important and so what i you know in that uh chapter that begins it thanks christology from what god did in christ is to say that uh the cross is demonstrating the han of god god's deep solidarity with all the cross bearing people in history and that salvation is has to resolve that and the cross means not just that our sin put God on the cross or something, um, but that God has embraced it in that deep way. Uh, and, and that's really connected to the investment image um, in open and relational theologies, right? You get some like, like Jürgen Moltmann or open theists who want to talk about God's self-limitation, where you have this more traditional God and the very nature of relationships is God limits God's self and like ties a hand behind God's back and invests in is related to the world with limited power, right? Uh, and then they are confident of the eschaton because at any point, I guess God can untie and uh, preserve the eschaton. And, and you can see that pop up in Open Theist and in Moltmann, and specifically when it has to bat it on homebrew. Uh, it and and, and self-investment is wanting to say the background understanding of God should not be the omnipotent deity of classical theism that then you limit the very power of God is that God has refused to be God without us invested God's self in the world. The very power of God is a type of foolishness and weakness. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. It's, I think it could work. Did Something you make that up? Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be my next um, But you know, and, and so in a sense, this divine self-investment is saying like that, that poetic rendering you see in Paul about uh, the cross and weakness and foolishness is actually an accurate place to begin to think about God metaphysically, right? That, and, and Han is a way of saying like God's investment isn't just in a world that needs forgiveness of sin. It's to a world that is bearing the burden of sin. Right, and if we want right. salvation... We need not just liberation from our own guilt, but liberation from oppression and harm and pain and shame. And part of that liberation is a, a, a pedagogy of desire. And mm -hmm. I'll quote you here, quote, the shape, openness, and direction of one's love and desire are determinative for the process of salvation, end quote. So, uh, Tripp, have you come over to the Gilmore camp and are you ready to let Don... Well, um, it, it, in one sense, yes, but you know, I, I, I would hate to try to read Dante and 
and, and realize the amount of energy and effort necessary to impress you by reading Dante. So I use the, <laughs> I use the uh, story of Scrooge in, um, in, in Dickens' Christmas Carol. Well, you know what? That, uh, that, is a, that is a short version of Dante, so keep rolling. I know, but I like short fiction because then I can get back to doing what I wanted to do anyway. You know, <laughs> it was a joke. But um, yeah, so, the, you know, the thing about uh, the you know, Scrooge is he gets, he has three different hauntings, right? And he gets the Christmas past. Like this, surprisingly, the three hauntings correlate to the open relational reflection on the three powers. And then, uh, so it's very convenient. If you want to explain Dante so I could then impose my metaphysical commitments on Dante in the future in a really sweet article we could co-author, I bet it'll work. You know, know, there was um, one moment when I was interviewing (laughs) David Bentley Hart where I tried out my... um, my universalist reading of Dante and not really universalist, but a uh, non-traditional reading of Dante on him. And, and despite his uh, theological, in, theologically innovative character, I'll put it that way. Uh, he just wasn't hearing it when it came to Dante. He said, you can't read it that way. And I'm like, really? I, I, what, yeah. what, what, where does he this authoritarianism the most, come Yeah. Cause he's never translated authoritative texts with ideological commitments. Yeah. Yeah. That was but a anyway, joke because he, he translated the Bible. Yes, um, New Testament. Yeah. So also on this show, I interviewed him about it. But keep rolling. So the yeah, so you get the three hauntings. So like the ghost of Christmas past is like literally what he's done and it sucks. Right. And then you get the ghost of Christmas present and it's like little tiny Tim and company. This is you get haunted that way. And then the Christmas future. Um it's like the trajectory in which you you're using your own agency leads to this. And then he falls into a uh his own um uh, uh, grave and then he gets up and then the question is like how will you relate to your past is it going to continue to determine your present or is seeing the trajectory you're on the death in which you have been scared straight in a sense through these hauntings will you leave it behind and rise to new life uh, and so the cross, like using that story uh, I want to talk about the cross as a transferable nightmare the point of the cross is to as like a mirror it reveals to us the way we have internalized these death dealing desires and not attended to the way they put people on crosses real and metaphorical um and you know the if you think about uh you know the the quote you said about like the shape and openness and direction of one's love and desire um like yeah like if you don't attend to one's desire then the way in which you relate to the possibilities of any moment will be on the habits of depravity that are not examined. Right. So like, it's just that those are not like determined things. They're, they're really there, but sometimes we don't get the gift of reality waking up to the way you've concealed ideologies and habits uh, in your heart. Uh, And, and Scrooge in one sense, he is scared to death. It's horrible. He, he, but he doesn't put his head in the ground. He gets up and realizes that the, the cross becomes beautiful because of the possibilities it opens up. But if you don't respond, the cross is condemnation. Right. And uh, when it comes to Dante, I'll, I'll just give you two moments because uh, these are fairly rare moments for me. They, they are moments where I remember reading something for the first time, even though I've read it many times since. Uh, but one of them is uh, at the gate of purgatory 
the angel who is guarding the gate because St. Peter is up in uh, the celestial spheres, um, says, St. Peter gave me this instruction. Uh, if there are any who come here who are close cases, I'm paraphrasing here, let them in because God would rather have too many than too few. And I remember just weeping at that passage. I said, that, 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 that is a God that is worth worshiping. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, um, and this is the one that I actually had in mind here, uh, in the, again, in purgatory, uh, they encounter the, uh, the silver age Roman poet, poet Stadius, who has just been released from purgatory and is on his way to paradise. And they ask him, well, how long did you have to stay here? And he, his answer is, I didn't have to stay here anytime, but for the longest time, what I wanted was to be a greater poet than Virgil. When I stopped desiring that and started desiring God, I was ready to go to paradise. Mm -hmm. And again, I, you know, uh, you know, as, as our listeners know, I mean, Dante among poets is, is the one who has shaped me the most, uh, you know, spiritually, theologically, and in a lot of other senses. Uh, and those are two passages that, uh, like I said, I, I, I heard uh, echoing in your book trip. So that for me, that is a high comp oh, yeah. compliment that I saw Dante in your book. Well, um, yeah, I hope you, uh, you know, tell all your Dante friends and that way they all go get this book and then <laughs> question your judgment. But, you know, as long as they've already purchased this, it, okay. There you go. Well, your final chapter turns to the notions of covenant. And since my theological education was heavy on biblical theology, I was feeling more at home here than I was in the earlier parts of the book. So talk about doing Christology, neither from above nor from below, but as you mentioned before, from within. I think this might be my favorite proposal in the so yeah i mean connecting i mean i talked a bit about it before but the it, in one sense the covenant the covenantal context is an insistence uh that you that to understand what's going on you think in a situated narrative context and i think the covenantal context gives you a kind of poetic framing for thinking about the big story and big picture that doesn't have the uh impetus of objectivity and domination discussing salvation history has like if you think about how uh the, like so when the story of the west was the story of creation or the story of the church was the story of everything right then there's this uh, uh kind of i'm uncomfortable with being able to do that uh and yet Israel constant, was constantly framing their whole relationship to history in their moment through the covenant. But it wasn't like they had, a, they had some uh, ability like us today uh, to then inscribe all other parts of the cosmos into it. Um, and, and I think that the, the covenant as a narrative context for thinking about Christology is essential. Um, the covenant, as I mentioned before, sets a context for understanding uh, Jesus's own fidelity to the covenant as an individual, right? Not as a community. Uh, and their covenant, God's self-investment has this full reciprocal moment of Jesus's kenosis, his fidelity, his, uh, and so the God's giving, uh, God's self to the world, the world in the person of Jesus fully receives and gives back such that this person is the image of the invisible God and the fruit of God's investment through the covenantal history. So the, the, within the story of Jesus and the fidelity of Christ, we come to participate. So Christology from within is to say like that disciples discipline that we mentioned at the beginning is 
thinking about these questions of who is God, who is Christ, uh, who am I, uh, from as a participant in Christ's living body, where you participate in Christ's fidelity, the faithfulness of Jesus, and the story of Israel. Um, right, right. Being grafted into Israel, do you mm-hmm. say Paul's image? Yeah, and I and I think that uh, you know I, I want to. Av- I think we need to avoid the uh, universalizing um, one history with all of history uh, in the type of problems you see in modernity. And I also think that the church uh, does a rather uh, historically has done a poor job of uh, of recognizing the that Jesus doesn't come in a vacuum, right? Like we may have condemned Marcion, but he's a lot more popular than one imagines. Uh, and so if you are insisting that the incarnation as an open relational theologian isn't divine invasion, uh, then the story of Israel isn't just a symbolic or historical background. It's actually the very place it starts to emerge, grow, and become possible. Right, right. And I want to go to an assertion that I, that I especially liked in this. Well, actually, it's in your closing chapter that God's presence in Jesus always happens in the context of Israel's story. That's on page 145. Mm-hmm. So here, as, as we're getting towards the end, I want to tee you up for a question that followed me through this book. And we've, we've touched on it already, but I want to give you some time to address it more directly here. How do you square your consistent concern to theorize Christian confession as one tradition within a pluralistic religious matrix with the specifically Jewish insistence that it is Israel's Messiah that brings the reign of God and all the blessings of God to all of the nations of the world, and that Israel's God creates for the glory of Israel's God. I can't get both of these trajectories to join in my mind, so I tend to, in my own theology and in my own preaching, frankly, to universalize Israel's story, talking about Jesus the Judean as the one savior of all of the nations and, in fact, all of creation but that doesn't seem to be your program. So how does your approach put these pieces together? You talked about it briefly before expand on a little bit here. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I would say is like in the preaching context, I would probably do the same because I think that's what we're doing in any confessional tradition. And and that Um, might be, I I once joked, I had coffee with a home, uh, not a home brewed, a, a Christian humanist listener once here in Athens. And I said, someday when my kids move out, I'm going to write a theology book and it's going to call, it's going to be called mad dogs, unsystematic theology. So, but anyway, go ahead. I, I, well, I cut you off. So, you know, I, I think there one is I'm wanting to affirm a type of postmodern pluralism that recognizes it, that doesn't want to, you know, one sublate all religious expressions into one particular one, but also to relativize them all by giving one narrative to all the religions participate in up going up the same mountain and that type of thing. Um, I hate the mountain. And, and so for me, the type of, uh, like I want to recognize each tradition has its own internal integrity. And this is the one where I've encountered the divine. And so I just like, I don't know how to speak as someone other than Alicia's partner, Elgin and Cora and Haven's dad, um, and uh, as a disciple of Jesus, as 
your friend. Like, and, and I get the, a lot of that is accidental based on where I was thrown in the world and the experience encounters I've had. I've had Christian friends who were born next to me who had the worst youth minister or an abusive parent and they aren't getting anywhere near a church, right? So the, there's so many accidents of history that for me have been agents of grace that I love and embrace my identity as a disciple in this tradition. Um, I just don't know how to ultimately speak about everything outside of it, even though I think I've encountered the one who is in charge of figuring all that out, right? Like, you know, um, so I trust the, the one doing the negotiating. So in a liturgical context, saying that um, all things become subject to the son, the son to the father, so that sin, law, death get conquered and God is all in all, like no problem. Uh, now, in the book, the way I try to negotiate this, and uh, and maybe it wasn't clear because I've had someone read it the other way as well, and I thought it was really clear. So well, who knows? Was that the fusion of God's self-investment and Jesus's canonic fidelity uh, has a metaphysical impact, uh, that fusion of the wills of divine and human in the person Jesus has a metaphysical impact. Uh, in uh, God at the metaphysical register. Um, I don't think that necessitates like Christian universalism and that everyone comes to Christ or whatever, because the, the, what I'm trying to get at is not that type of eschatology. But uh, I would say that God is the God in relationship to all creation is always different based on God's relationship to creation, but the fusion of wills and Jesus's full fidelity changes the God who shows up the next moment uh, in, uh, in all spaces and places. And so uh, you could say my book is a type of evolutionary uh, Arianism uh, that eventually gets around to becoming Trinitarian. Um, <laughs> like it's not till the, 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 uh, which, which is that, you know, that far off from uh, at least one, one way of reading Romans. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the other thing I would just say is that, you know, Jesus regularly uh, asserts a unique uh, authority and privilege for his own relationship with the Father, gives us access, right, like in John, but then says there, there are other flocks. So I don't, I, I don't think, um, I, I wonder if part of the reason this question's so tense right now is that the church is just starting to get over its, uh, or, or get embarrassed by its relationship with colonialism. But, you know, in questions like this, I like to think, uh, what if we're not the end of church history, but the early church? Like, what if like five, 6,000 years from now, at this moment, where Christianity finally realizes when we say God, it's not the justification for all order in all of existence that everyone needs to capitulate to, and we have the best version. Uh, but we are getting over uh, these type of uh, you know, the big other renderings of the divine and walking into more uh, participatory discipleship-based uh, expressions. Like, we're the early church. If we're the early church, then we don't have to have answers to all these things right now. We're just figuring it out. How long has it been since, the, since we didn't primarily have an antagonistic relationship with our, uh, you know, neighbors of different religious traditions? I mean, if you just think of our own, like when we grew up, in the South, uh, to what I came going up, you know what I mean? Like in, in Christian <laughs> culture in America, the kids being born now just begin 
with different intuitions about care and understanding for their differently religious and non-religious neighbors. And in, in some sense, I think we should be trusting those who are not constantly having to overcome and apologize that at one point they wanted to save all their friends and get them to sound just like them. Like it's a, that's what I mean by like the early church. So these might be, you know, a few generations later, um, the, my family went from uh, being people that uh, own slaves to those that protest at black lives matter protests. And, and, and when you're born into a tradition and it's getting over an issue, right. And our, uh, colonialism is always connected to the way we rendered creation and other religious traditions. I feel like we're getting to a place where new generations will be born into a much more neighborly context and can ask that question in different ways. Um, plus the other side is a lot of people are not siloed religious. There's a lot more multi-religious people, which is a different type of question uh, to ask. Yeah. And I, and I'll just add a counterpoint to that and I won't, I won't extend it too far that, uh, it's also possible that, you know, 4,000 years from now to use your 6,000 number um, that, you know, the church will end up, you know, becoming uh, or coming to look a lot more like, uh, you know, for instance, Latin American Pentecostalism mm -hmm. than it looks like, you know, North American or North Atlantic to broaden it out a little bit uh, academic theology. So, I mean, I, I, I grant your point and I also would insist that uh, the contingency uh is really pervasive. Oh, um, I would love for you to convince uh, most theological people that contingency was that big a deal. Then they could become open and relational theologians. <laughs> <laughs> or they can, uh, you know, have a notion of a uh, divine sovereignty and of contingency and become Boethians. But yeah, there's not yeah, that they, many of us left. <laughs> you, know, you know, what's interesting about the observation, right? Like, so then do we want to get anxious about particular people that are a part of our community now and how they imagine an answer coming to it? Or do we want to put more of our energy and investment in figuring out how to be faithful in the present? Because our fidelity in the present in deeper and new ways to God as mediated by Jesus as Christians, I think will create, will give us a context for better answers in the future. Uh, and so many times I think we get hung up on um, parsing people based on their theological convictions of a moment, as opposed to learning, uh, uh, learning how to be faithful together, uh, you know, across ideas, as opposed to, you know, like actual embodied uh, faith. Um, well, and I would contend that, I mean, ethics is always rooted in some kind of narrative. So, I mean, uh, oh, yeah. to be a good person in a Homeric epic is different from being a good person in a Jane Austen novel. So I think that the story is had important to pick and part one of that of faithfulness you're talking about. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'll confess I've got a bit of the old pagan about me, but uh, <laughs> I, I will say that, uh, you know, I think that disputing those stories, and again, I'm going back to McIntyre here, is part of the content of that faithfulness, though. So I, I grant your point that faithfulness encompasses more than the dispute over what kind of story we're living in. I don't think it's any less than disputing what kind of story we're in. It, and there's also be better and worse ways to dispute. Right. Like, I mean, just think of your podcast partners. Like half of y'all's episodes are enjoyable because I already know y'all don't agree when I see the title. And <laughs> yeah, like Oh, they're going to fight. They're going to fight. <laughs> y'all are friends. Y'all are friends. 
Y'all care about each other outside the context of the podcast. You take each other seriously uh, and honor each other in disagreements. Right? Like I've in in that's what I'm saying. Like I think the disputing is really important. It's just like if we're disputing the holy mystery, then um, then both sides of the dispute like have an integrity to them. And you don't even get to hold the mystery and dialogical tension without honoring the other person uh, you're engaging with. And I think that's why people are valuing conversations like this and other in religious podcasts, because um, you can have long conversations where people get more clear and distinct in their ideas, but it's in the context of a conversation uh, that's not drawing uh, boundaries um, uh, based on one's conclusion. And it, and that can ultimately create space, I think, for people to engage more of the tradition uh, than, than if you are asking, you know, what do you believe about X, Y, and Z? As opposed to, like, here are the disputes and the conversation partners. More people need to meet Boethius, you know? And, and, you, and you, don't, you, you definitely don't want to just read the conclusions if, if that counted as, uh, as hanging out with them. Yeah, that's not really reading Boethius. We'll tell you what, Trip. You don't I give the cliff notes to everybody. Is that not the? Oh yeah, don't 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 cuss. You go down to Spark Notes and find out. I'll don't now see the now, consolation now of Spark Notes. Oh oh heavens heavens. Ah. Well, Trip, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So, in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about Christology, open open and relational thought, pluralism, or whatever else as we head for the door? Oh, um, two things. I just say, you know, if anyone reads the book and has questions and thoughts, reach out because anytime I get to talk about my book and respond to people's questions is a good day for me. I, I've spent hours and hours reading other people's books and, and asking questions, Nathan. So uh, I'm always happy to engage people. On the 25th of November is a big panel for this Christ in the Across the Disciplines Conference. It's a type of opening up the American Academy of Religion. So there's going to be a big panel on the book. If you want to see Tom Ord critique me, I think you'll find out that indeed my Christology is higher than his. Um, Donna Bowman's a part of the um, session. Uh, Jeff Pugh, who's been on your podcast, is uh, a part of it. Like, it's, going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, the the only thing I would emphasize, I guess, about this book and just open relational Christology in general is that Christology in the Gospels is not about the title, like Jesus is the Christ. Everyone knows what the title is, like even the demons. Um, it's what the content is. So like Peter gets it right. You are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says, my dad told you. Um, but then he resists the content of that confession. Like he doesn't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem. He and then James and John want to sit on the side on a throne. So I think the conversation around Christology in the New Testament is about the nature of power. It's about the way in which we participate in uh, the life of Christ, in the life of discipleship, and it's about the promise that a God gives who is revealed in this particular story, in this particular narrative, in this particular way. And I think there's so many beautiful ways in church history of, you know, of dealing with it. And so like even places I disagree with others, like I'm, I'm like, I see more of myself in someone who finds the inability to talk about God without telling the story of Jesus. I find myself more an ally with them, even if we disagree on these things, 
um, because the conversation of Christology is about that content. And for me, the question of power, how you participate in the divine life in the way of Jesus, what the promise of God who goes to a cross looks like uh, are essential to me. And yeah, so that's what was going on in the book. And I don't want to say anything else. I'll just keep going, Nathan. Trip Fuller, thank you for coming back on Christian Humanist Profiles. No problem. I'll, I'll, I'll do it anytime you want. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Divine Self-Investment from Sacrosage Press. Is that how you pronounce it, I hope so. Very good. Sacrosage Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.